You're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. This is episode 12, Spyclopedia number 1, William Stevenson part 1, or The Brits Are on Our Side, Right? Today I'm recording from 635th Avenue, New York, New York. So, a lot of people probably remember when the CIA and MI6 used falsified intelligence to show that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. That false intelligence was then used by the Bush administration to sell the United Nations and the American public on the second invasion of Iraq. Perhaps fewer people remember the Gulf of Tonkin incident, where the USS destroyer Maddox performing signals intelligence in North Vietnamese waters, was attacked by North Vietnamese torpedo boats. Or the NSA says they were attacked. United States Secretary of Defense Robert S. McNamara stated that the attack never happened, and when asked, Army General Vo Nguyen Giap also stated that absolutely nothing happened. As a side note, Captain George Stephen Morrison was in command at the time on the nearby aircraft carrier USS Bon Homme Richard. His son, of course, was Jim Morrison of the Doors. Another weird synchronicity was that it was Daniel Ellsberg who was at the Pentagon that night receiving messages from the ship when it was said to have been attacked. Except we all know it's not synchronicities in this case, right? Covering things up is how you advance in the game. Also of note, there were CIA swift boats in the area on this same night. I'm not 100% sure of what happened in the Gulf of Tonkin, but I have major doubts as to the official narrative. And as we can see, so does Robert McNamara and Vo Nguyen Giap. Still, that was the Second Iraq War and the Vietnam War, which were two wars of imperialist aggression, so it would make sense, perhaps, that they would be founded on fake intelligence lies, right? Surely, surely World War II wouldn't also have things like this, right? Well, folks... On October 27, 1941, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt took the stage in Washington, D.C. for Navy Day. With Britain under siege, Franklin Delano Roosevelt wanted the United States to join the war. The American public did not want to join the war. At that point, less than 7% of the American public wanted the U.S. to get involved in 1940. I have in my possession a secret map made by Hitler's government. It is a map of South America and part of Central America as Hitler proposes to reorganize it, FDR told the crowd of reporters. Then he brought up something else, something even more unbelievable. FDR stated that they had uncovered a Nazi plot where the Nazis planned to abolish all religions and establish a National Reich Church with the worship of Odin and other German pagan deities. FDR said, It is a detailed plan, which for obvious reasons the Nazis did not wish and do not wish to publicize just yet. 
but which they are ready to impose a little later on a dominated world, if Hitler wins. It is a plan to abolish all existing religions, Protestant, Catholic, Mohammedan, Hindu, Buddhist, and Jewish alike. The property of all churches will be seized by the Reich and its puppets. The cross and all other symbols of religion are to be forbidden. The clergy are to be forever silenced under penalty of the concentration camps, where even now so many fearless men are being tortured because they have placed God above Hitler. In the place of the cross of Christ will be put two symbols, the swastika and the naked sword. A god, the god of blood and iron, will take the place of the god of love and mercy. Let us well ponder that statement which I have made tonight. The press went wild, and they helped whip up public opinion in favor of war. Now, you might be saying to yourself, the map at least sounds like the Zimmerman telegram from World War I, right? That was when British intelligence intercepted a telegram showing the Germans attempting to get the Mexican government to declare war on the United States. Why, this is just like that, but even worse this time, right? Unfortunately, the map and the plan to abolish all religions were both fake. They were fake news. In fact, they were a very curious type of manipulation of the public. It was a psychological operation, a psychological warfare operation, if you will. Now, who gave FDR that intel? Wild Bill Donovan, then working in the Office of the Coordinator of Information, which would soon become the Office of Strategic Services, which would then later become the CIA. But where did Donovan get this information? He got it from William Stevenson. Who was William Stevenson? Why, William Stevenson was just a simple Canadian businessman without a formal rank, living in New York City. Stevenson himself said, nothing deceives like a document. Ian Fleming said of William Stevenson, James Bond is a highly romanticized version of a true spy. The real thing is William Stevenson. General Wild Bill Donovan said, Bill Stevenson taught us all we ever knew about foreign intelligence. As a side note, they would call Donovan Big Bill, and they would call Stevenson Little Bill, which is pretty funny. This will be the first of presumably many episodes in what I am calling Spyclopedia, which was the lives of spies, their weird interests and fixations, actions, behaviors, psychology, and of course, the actions they take and how they influence history. I got the name from a book, which which itself is called Spyclopedia. I think it's a stupid pun, but I like it. So, who was William Stevenson? Let's get into it. Sir William Samuel Stevenson was born in 1897, and he died in 1989 at the age of 92. Stevenson was born to a Scottish father from Orkney, and his mother was from Canada. His father died when he was quite young, so Stevenson was raised by his mother's Icelandic aunt. One of his teachers said William Stevenson was a bookworm who loved boxing, a wee fellow but a real one for a fight. In his early years, Stevenson worked at a lumberyard, 
then worked as a telegram delivery man, where he apparently showed an aptitude for spying as he managed to notice Bloody Jack Kravchenko, who was a famous Ukrainian-Canadian outlaw, and Stevenson tipped off the police, leading to his capture. When World War I started, Stevenson joined as an infantryman. He barely made it in the service, as William Stevenson was a short king, standing at five foot two. Apparently, he convinced the medical examiners to allow him into the infantry by volunteering to be a bugler, since they wrote on his paperwork, passed as bugler. Stevenson was sent to the Western Front, and almost immediately he was gassed, which sent him to convalesce for several months. Then, unlike Hitler, I guess, he was recruited to join the Royal Air Force, where he joined the 73rd Squadron in February of 1918. During this time, Stevenson became close with Gene Tunney, the famous boxer, probably because they were both from Ontario and because of their mutual love of boxing. Stevenson won the featherweight championship of the Inter-Allied Games. Gene Tunney said, Everybody admired him. He was quick as a dash of lightning. He was fast, a clever featherweight. He was fearless and a quick thinker. His nickname in the ring was Captain Machine Gun. In March of 1918, Stevenson was shot down by two German fighters. He immediately got into another machine, and the first thing we knew, there was a report that he shot down the two German fighters. For this, he won the Military Cross. In his career, William Stevenson shot down between 12 and 18 enemy aircraft, including the brother of the Red Baron. In July of 1918, Stevenson was shot down yet again, this time behind enemy lines. He was captured and placed in a prisoner of war camp. Apparently, his eye for business opportunities and industrial espionage developed early too, because there's this story of Stevenson, who was bored in the POW camp, and he noticed this German tin can opener. For opening tin cans, right? He was so impressed with it, he stole it, and told his comrades that he was going to escape from the camp with the tin can opener, and go back to Canada and patent it, and sell it all over the world. Now, Separate from this, he supposedly stole a photograph from the German camp commandant from his office. Now, I was thinking about this story, and I don't understand exactly why a POW camp commander would have his own picture in his office, but, I don't know, maybe with a loved one? Whatever. Supposedly, William Stevenson stole the photo and the tin can opener, and Stevenson kept that photo of his, of his German POW camp commander for the rest of his life as a gesture of contempt for his captors. Now, being an absolute madman, William Stevenson did actually escape from this POW camp. By 1919, Stevenson had made it all the way back to Winnipeg, where he actually patented the tin can opener and... According to the comrade who retold the story, said, I believe he was successful in making money out of it. Now, I could not find the exact patent. I did try. It does seem that he did patent a tin can opener. Couldn't find the exact patent. But I did find a picture of the tin can opener. Now, 
William Stevenson used the funds from the tin can opener, which is to say a theft and even some light industrial espionage. He used those funds to open a hardware and import business in Canada. The main purpose of the business was to sell can openers. Now, what's that quote? Behind every great fortune lies a great crime. Although in this case, I guess it might be more like behind a small business failure lies a petty crime. Speaking of petty crime, William Stevenson's business failed, and one Canadian said he left in a pretty bad odor. He got money from people in the Icelandic Canadian community and did not pay them back. Then he left town in the dark of night. Which, I mean, whomst among us has not borrowed a lot of money and skipped town, am I right? William Stevenson moved to the United Kingdom, where he started a new company with T. Thorne Baker, where they were working on research and development of phototelegraphy. They were working on developing a method of sending photos over telephone lines, and invented a light-sensitive device that increased the rate of transmission, which was eventually used to create television sets. Prior to this point, at no point did he show any particular aptitude or interest in science, but in the old days, you could just enter any field and make discoveries and then become a millionaire. That's what he did. So, William Stevenson bought into two radio companies, the General Radio Company Limited and the Cox Cavendish Electrical Company. Buying into these companies provided him with a great fortune because... Within a short amount of time, the radio sets made by the General Radio Company were in thousands of homes throughout Britain. The patents alone brought him an annual £100,000 over an 18-year period. In 1923, the Manitoba Free Press reported, Due partly to his efforts in a tremendous advertising campaign, broadcasting was established in England on a highly efficient and comprehensive scale within a few short months, and his companies were the first in England to produce a complete range of broadcasting equipment suitable for public use. While pursuing some of these scientific and business endeavors, Stevenson was, in his words, somewhat paradoxically still boxing to retain his title of amateur lightweight world champion, and when he finally retired from the ring in 1923, he was undefeated. In 1923, he became the managing director of both the General Radio Company Limited and the Cox Cavendish Electrical Company, further cementing his position and fortune. In 1923, Stevenson met and married the daughter of a rich Tennessee tobacco exporter, Mary Simmons. You remember in episode 5 about Eric Jan Honnesen working with an arms dealer who was also a tobacco exporting tycoon who was also a spy, right? And that tobacco exporting companies were providing cover for MI6 throughout the world, right? Just something to keep in mind here when we talk a little bit about his career later. Also, hilariously, a standard oil heiress, Marion de Chastelaine, said Mary was just about the right size for him because Bill was quite short and she was even shorter. I felt tall, tall, tall when I was next to her. In 1926, William Stevenson was worth one million pounds. He bought into Sound City Films, which at that point was producing half of the total output of British films at this period, and was the largest film studio outside of Hollywood. 
Stevenson also took control of Alpha Cement, which was one of the largest cement companies in Britain. He joined the board of Pressed Steel Company, which made 90% of Britain's car bodies. The children's author and spy Roald Dahl said of William Stevenson, quote, I mean, the fact he became a millionaire about the same time as Lord Beaverbrook and about the, and at about the same age, 27 or 28, he came over here and took over pressed steel at that age, and it was not so easy to become a millionaire as it is today. He became rich as soon as he wanted to, more or less. Unquote. Pretty curious, huh? William Stevenson basically went from working in lumber yards and stealing tin can openers and skipping town to becoming an international businessman within 15 years. Now, it's not impossible that this could happen organically, but given his later career, let's withhold judgment until we get further in this story. At this stage of his life, William Stevenson was traveling to five continents and began meeting with the world's leading bankers and financiers, European and Asian prime ministers, ambassadors, and industrialists. The book Room 3603 said he helped to underwrite schemes for the development of backward areas and the raising of standards of living among native peoples in the Middle East and India. This he regarded from every point of view as the most rewarding field for the investment of capital overseas, unquote. From what I've seen of my research with the Bechtel Company and the Krupp Company, he is right. If you want to amass gigantic fortunes, then come up with schemes to quote-unquote develop backward areas. Stevenson was on an interesting trip in 1934, where a group of British technical experts went to visit India and and this is such a great euphemism, to investigate the prospects for the development of local natural resources and industry. While on that trip, they focused on the Kashmir and Bhopal, which were the two principally Muslim regions in the subcontinent. They met Aga Khan III and went on a tiger hunt with the Nawab of Bhopal, who said that William Stevenson was the best shot he had ever seen. Although probably not directly correlated, Bhopal was later the site of perhaps the world's worst industrial accident, causing somewhere between 4,000 to 16,000 deaths and over half a million non-fatal casualties due to a leak at the Union Carbide Pesticide Plant. That disaster, of course, was in 1984, so I'm sure we couldn't blame William Stevenson for that one. So, in the course of business with the Pressed Steel Company, Stevenson found himself visiting Germany. And this is where, by his telling, he makes his first contact with espionage. Stevenson was visiting Germany in order to purchase steel, and he visited various steel plants. Now, I'm not certain he was actually buying steel, but, you know, whatever. That's the story. He was visiting Germany to purchase steel. And pretty much immediately, Stevenson noticed that Germany was secretly rearming and producing weapons and munitions, not just steel. There are some pretty funny stories about how obvious it was that they were rearming, but I will save those stories for another episode. 
patriotic self-starter that he was, William Stevenson came to the obvious conclusion that what he needed to do was to create his own private clandestine industrial intelligence organization. You know, as you do. And as the story goes, then he offered his services to the British government and was put in contact with the secret intelligence service, often called MI6. And supposedly they were initially not very enthusiastic about working with him. But as we'll discuss, I'm not certain any part of this story is entirely true, including that detail. So Roald Dahl said that Stevenson was a very close friend of Lord Beaverbrook. Now we've talked about Lord Beaverbrook before, but basically he was just a British aristocrat, you know. I have a quote here. He did not know Churchill personally then, but with his absolute cleverness, he spotted Churchill as a future leader. He could have sent them to Halifax or Chamberlain, but they were both idiots, and he wouldn't have gotten anywhere. I think Max Beaverbrook advised him to do it too, because they were both Canadians. He was a close friend, really a genuinely close friend of Beaverbrook." Unquote. At this time, Winston Churchill was on the back benches of Parliament, in the political wilderness, and he was one of the few vocally opposing Adolf Hitler at this time, and of German rearmament policies in general. William Stevenson worked directly with Winston Churchill to feed him information. Stevenson's organization managed to obtain the balance sheets of the Ruhr steel firms, which showed evidence of rearmament. In April 1936, Stevenson found proof of Germany's military expenditures amounting to 800 million pounds sterling. Churchill then famously put the question of the 800 million for rearmament to Neville Chamberlain while in Parliament. Chamberlain, of course, was pursuing a policy of appeasement to the Nazis. For the next three years, Stevenson continued to feed Churchill with evidence of Hitler's rearmament expenditures. That, said Stevenson, was my only training in espionage. Now, if you think that an obscure, poor Canadian kid bought his way into radio, film, concrete, and steel companies suddenly, out of nowhere, starting out only with tin can opener money, and I guess ripping off the Icelandic com Canadian community, and at no point in this time had made any contact with intelligence agencies, well then, I guess I have a tin can opener to sell you. In the course of researching William Stevenson, there were times that I wondered if he was actually the bastard of some nobleman or something. It's not that I don't believe that people don't become organically rich from nothing, but it is quite rare, and I definitely feel there's multiple pieces of his backstory missing, but I guess we might never know. And to be clear, I do not buy the idea that William Stevenson set up his own industrial espionage network and then made contact with MI6. I think that he was already in contact with MI6 who had him do it, but that's neither here nor there. So, William Stevenson became a spy. For many years, the chief of MI6 was always discreetly referred to by those in the know as the letter C. C had been a retired admiral. 
Now, obviously, this is the inspiration for Q in the James Bond films. At this time, C was Colonel Stuart Menzies, who ironically fought in the Battle of Ypres against Hitler during World War I. There are a lot of interesting things to say about Menzies, and maybe I'll do an episode on him one day, but we gotta stay focused here. William Stevenson worked with Industrial Intelligence Center, IIC. IIC was an affiliate of MI6. As an international businessman, this was perfect cover, because even if they were caught, the British government could very plausibly argue that this was just normal industrial espionage. And of course, William Stevenson already demonstrated skill and ability at industrial espionage. The IIC was set up by Desmond Morden, who was Churchill's personal assistant, who, with MI6 and the army, began to develop the concept of economic warfare. Now, economic warfare is a very broad and forward-thinking concept of the role of economics in future wars, and it rejected concepts like blockades as out-of-date in the modern world, in favor of other styles of conflict like economic warfare. Desmond Morden said, Thus the new ministry should concern itself not only with such overt activities as contraband control, but also with a whole new offensive field of special operations in the shape of subversion and sabotage to be directed against both the enemy country and those neutral countries from which the enemy drew his supplies, unquote. So, a couple things should stick out there. First of all, intelligence agencies controlling contraband, eh? I sure hope this doesn't create any spectacular blowback that NPR brains will then explain away as discrete, decontextualized problems someday in the future. Also, not to give British intelligence too much credit for visionary thinking, the Germans absolutely bopped the British with industrial sabotage during World War I, which was why the British were so fixated on it the second time around. Somewhat far afield of economic espionage, William Stevenson came up with a plan in 1938 to assassinate Adolf Hitler with a high-powered sporting rifle at a Nazi rally. He suggested arming a young English crackshot with a high-powered telescopic sighted rifle. However, the plan was vetoed by Britain's Foreign Secretary, Lord Halifax, who was the leading exponent of appeasement. Instead, Neville Chamberlain decided to negotiate with Hitler and signed the Munich Agreement in September 1938. And of course, while assassinating Hitler sounds pretty cool, I'm a little bit hesitant about the British wanting to assassinate foreign politicians who oppose British hegemony. Just throwing that out there. So, Germany's high-grade arms steelmaking depended on the Bessemer process, which used high-phosphorus iron ore from Sweden. When Germany launched their blitzkrieg against Poland in, in September 1939, Germany only had about a nine-month's supply of ore, which was a gamble, in other words. I'll probably cover this in future episodes, but Germany l probably lost World War I not because of, I don't know, 
the U.S. entering or any crap like that, but because of the British blockade. They simply ran out of certain materials. And, of course, when World, when World War II came around, there was the distinct possibility of this happening yet again with several types of supplies. When Britain and France entered World War II, Germany had to secure the Swedish ore. Fritz Tyson, the German industrialist, had told Hitler and Göring that the war would be won by the side which secured control of the Swedish ore. German freighters were loading several ships worth of the ore and were hoping to make a quick escape together across the sea to the German ports. William Stevenson was like, put me in coach, and on December 16, 1939, he wrote a memorandum which recommended that the ships must be prevented from leaving by methods which will be neither diplomatic nor military. Namely, to mine the Norwegian harbors and or blow up the German ships. William Stevenson offered to carry out the mission personally. Desmond Morton, at the new Ministry of Economic Warfare, was equally enthusiastic, although his ministry was not yet assigned responsibility for that other great euphemism, special operations. Now, mind you, if this mission had worked, this could have theoretically stopped World War II within a year, which is wild. So, the plan. At this point, before the Special Operations Executive was established, there were two divisions run under the C organization of MI6, run by Colonel Menzies. There was SO1 and SO2. SO1 ran subversion, and SO2 ran sabotage. They approved Stevenson's plan to blow up <clears throat> the ships. They smuggled high-grade plastic explosives, which at that point was a relatively new invention, they smuggled these explosives through their diplomatic pouches, about 30 to 40 pounds worth. By their telling, the diplomats were unaware that they were smuggling plastic explosives. And since it was a new, relatively new invention, it's possible. But as always, who knows if they knew or didn't know, right? Can't trust the spies to tell the truth on it. So... They hid the plastic explosives in the office right under the diplomat, which perhaps bolsters the claim that the diplomat did not know about it. They also hid some of the explosives in a sculptor's studio, since it would have looked like clay or something like that in that setting. Now, this was a pretty risky mission, since German agents were all over Sweden, and they would have absolutely killed two British agents if they had known what their plans were. At the last minute, King Gustav of Sweden found out about the plans and called King George, who got Lord Halifax to call it off. Great Britain learned not to trust Sweden, and of course Nazi Germany would later occupy Norway to try to prevent these types of risks in the future. After the Swedish debacle, Stevenson reported back to London and received orders to pack his bags. He was headed to the US of A. His cover for this mission would be as a successful businessman, which he was, but his original mission was to, quote, further Anglo-American cooperation in one specific field. He was required to establish relations on the highest possible level between British SIS and the U.S. 
Federal Bureau of Investigation, unquote, since MI6 could not operate in the U.S. with anything approaching competence without the FBI's permission and or help. Although, of course, there was already a formal there was already a formal relationship between MI6 and the FBI. It was mainly a perfunctory one, which focused on cooperation about visas and some light intelligence sharing about relatively low-level targets. Now, Stevenson going there to carry out this task. This could have been quite a tricky feat since J. Edgar Hoover was a queenie bitch, but there were a few things working in Stevenson's favor, as we'll see. William Stevenson was introduced to J. Edgar Hoover through their mutual friend Gene Tunney, the famous boxer, who we mentioned before. When Stevenson and Hoover met for the first time, Stevenson explained his mission and his hopes for cooperation. Hoover listened attentively and then said, quote, While he himself would welcome the idea of working with British intelligence, he was under a strict injunction from the State Department to refrain from collaborating with the British in any way which might conceivably be interpreted as infringing or compromising United States neutrality in the, Euro in the European struggle, and he made it clear that he would not be prepared to contravene this policy without a direct order from the White House. Further, Hoover stipulated that even if President Roosevelt could be persuaded to agree to the principle of collaboration between the FBI and the British SIS, this collaboration should be affected initially by a personal liaison between Stevenson and himself, and that no other United States government department, including the Department of State, should be informed of it. A couple things should stick out there, namely cutting out the State Department and making it a personal liaison between Stevenson and Hoover. That is definitely of note. Luckily for them all, William Stevenson was already also friends with Ernest Cunio, the general counsel for the Democratic National Convention and close friend to FDR. Cunio has been described as the leader of FDR's brain trust, and Cunio met with Roosevelt and reported back that the president wanted the closest possible marriage between the FBI and British intelligence. So the game was afoot. Now, let's note a couple things here. Hoover and the FBI could not take any action to jeopardize U.S. neutrality. But being the shrewd power broker that he was, he knew that he should, could, and would work with MI6. Further, FDR wanted a close relationship between the FBI and MI6, which, that's like, taken as a given now, given the entire Cold War, but... There was really no reason for that to just be taken as gospel in the 1940s, for many, many reasons, as we will see. Finally, absolutely nobody wanted the State Department involved. And if there is one thing I've learned from studying intelligence agencies, it's that they all view the State Department as cucks and suckers to be used and abused and kept from anything important, and that holds up in this story too. The spies themselves used all kinds of different arguments about this, but at the end of the day, it's what I said that matters. And of course, the State Department is constantly cover for the CIA and other agencies. After these meetings, William Stevenson flew back to London and met with Churchill, who said, 
You know what you must do at once. We have discussed it most fully, and there is a complete fusion of minds between us. You are to be my personal representative in the United States. I will ensure that you have the full support of all the resources at my command. I know that you will have success, and the good Lord will guide your efforts as he will ours. They picked William Stevenson because, quote, Firstly, he was Canadian, and it was believed that Canadians got along with Americans better than British Brits. Secondly, he had very good American connections. He had a sort of fox terrier character, and if he undertook something, he would carry it through, unquote. Now, at this point, the U.S. was still neutral. The Neutrality Act allowed for the U.S. to sell weapons and supplies to the British, but they had to be carried in cash and shipped on British freighters. This was called cash and carry, and it put British supplies at a huge risk, because, you know, there were U-boats, and there was a high risk of sabotage. The British threw together a group called the British Purchasing Commission, which was run by a Scottish guy named Arthur Purvis. Also, what did I say about purchasing? I think I mentioned it in the episode where I talked about Boris Brassel, the episode of Who Financed Hitler about Henry Ford. Boris Brassel was sent by the Russian army to work in purchasing in the United States. Purchasing often is either cover or is itself literally spy work, just saying. So the British Purchasing Commission, now Purvis, like William Stevenson, was not taking a salary for his work with the British Purchasing Commission. Purvis liked Stevenson and would often say, regarding World War II in general, it always takes a Scotsman to pull England out of a hole. Purvis and Stevenson would work closely together as there were many risks to British purchasing. For example, German agents could easily recruit from the German, Irish, and Italian sailors and stevedores on the ports, as well as, of course, the German, Irish, and Italian Americans. And the FBI could not do anything about it if it did not directly threaten U.S. interests. William Stevenson took cover as a passport control officer in New York City. PCO, passport control officer, used to be a very common and convenient cover for MI6 representatives abroad, although I'm sure they would never do that nowadays. His offices were at, you guessed it, 630 5th Avenue, New York, New York, room 3603. As Hitler took over Norway, Belgium, Holland, and Luxembourg, the British public was growing increasingly outraged, and Chamberlain resigned as Prime Minister. The King called Winston Churchill, who set up his national coalition government. Among many other things, in MI6 they combined the SO1 and SO2 into the SOE, the Special Operations Executive, which Churchill jokingly called the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. As for FDR, as things were heating up, he began dismissing the isolationists in his administration, as almost his entire cabinet disagreed with him about the possibility of the U.S. entering into World War II. Now, this is where we need to reintroduce Wild Bill Donovan, who will probably get his own episodes in the future. Now, not to do a full history, Wild Bill Donovan 
came from a family of Irish Roman Catholics. He grew up poor in Buffalo, New York, but eventually became a successful lawyer. To his credit, he's probably one of the more self-made men that we've ever talked about on Program to Chill. Although Donovan was a Republican and FDR was a Democrat, they were classmates at Columbia Law School, and this is funny, FDR says they were friends, but Donovan says they were not friends, which is pretty funny. Wild Bill Donovan fought in World War I in the Fighting 69th, where he won the Congressional Medal of Honor and the name Wild Bill. At one point, he was on the shortlist to be made Attorney General in the Hoover administration, but did not get the job. Although he was a teetotaler in his personal life, he was excluded by the dry faction of the Republican Party during Prohibition because he was Irish Catholic, which was not reliably dry enough for them. So FDR wanted to use him for something. Well, he found something for Donovan, all right. FDR made Donovan his informal roving ambassador in Europe and would later make him a spymaster. It does sort of sound like they were actually friends at Columbia, right? Now, I know that there's Skull and Bones and Book and Snake. I don't know if Columbia has any secret societies, but, I mean, <laughs> like... Their relationship later sort of makes me wonder if they were jacking off onto a skull like in Skull and Bones. You know, just wondering. So, William Stevenson said that Wild Bill Donovan was the crucial man who helped him, who most helped him achieve his goals, which is interesting that he said that of Donovan rather than of Hoover. But we'll get into it, and I'm still not sure I believe him, but we'll see. At this stage, though... Wild Bill Donovan was still traveling around Europe. He went to England and met with King George. He, went, he met with Winston Churchill. Notably, he and the White House snubbed and did not visit Joe Kennedy, the ambassador to the UK, who was not on good terms with FDR by that point, since Joe Kennedy was vehemently advising the president against holding the bag in a war with which the Allies expect to be, to be beaten. That's right, JFK's dad was a defeatist, pro-appeasement type. But of course, what can you expect from a subservient Anglophile Irishman? Donovan and Stevenson worked together first on a vital deal to sell U.S. destroyer ships to the U.K. The U.K. badly needed destroyer ships, which function as escorts which is exactly what the UK needed to protect the British freight coming across the Atlantic. FDR wanted to sell them, but they could not get it through Congress yet. So room 3603 says of Donovan and Stevenson's first meeting, At this meeting, the main subject of discussion was Britain's urgent need of destroyers, and various ways and means were discussed for a formula to cover the transfer of 40 or 50 of the old four stackers, which were then in cold storage, to Britain without infringing on American neutrality law and without affronting American public opinion, in which ships of the Navy have a very special sentimental value. Quickly, they cut a deal for 50 aging American destroyers in exchange for the rights to air and naval bases in Bermuda, Newfoundland, the Caribbean, 
in British Guyana. The bases were leased for 99 years and the destroyers were of great value to the UK as convoy escorts. Now, Lord Lewis Mountbatten, the British Chief of Combined Operations, who also happened to be a known pederast and eventual passenger of IRA Airlines, as a side note, the official stance of Program to Chill is 13 dead and not forgotten, we got 18 and Mountbatten. 13 gone and not forgotten, we got 18 and Mountbatten. Sorry for the interjection, I just have a hard time talking about Lord Mountbatten without bringing all this up. But, Lord Mountbatten said, We were told that the man primarily responsible for the loan of the 50 American destroyers to the Royal Navy at the critical moment was Bill Stevenson. That he had managed to persuade the president that this was in the ultimate interests of America themselves, and various other loans of that sort were arranged. These destroyers were very important to us. Although they were only old destroyers, the main thing was to have combat ships that could actually guard against and attack U-boats. I think that the trick has been done, said the Marquess of Lothian, referring to tricking the U.S. Congress. William Stevenson also brokered deals to secure a hundred flying fortresses, as well as a million rifles for use by the Home Guard in case of a German invasion. Additionally, Lord Beaverbrook wanted the Sperry bomb sites, which were a U.S. invention that offered unprecedented accuracy for daytime bombings from high altitudes. Under good conditions, they could hit a circular error probable of 75 feet, which was unprecedented at that time. The United States Air Force understandably did not want to give them to the Royal Air Force, since they would inevitably be shot down and captured by the Germans, probably well before the U.S. even entered the war. Luckily, William Stevenson had an answer for that too. He told Donovan that, on the basis of recent British secret intelligence, why the Germans already possessed details of the Sperry bomb site. Now, secret British intelligence strikes again, and wouldn't you know it, it just so happens to suggest that actually the British should just get their way. Funny how British intelligence has a way of just coming to the same conclusion that the British want. William Stevenson has described his work with Wild Bill Donovan in this period as covert diplomacy. Oh, indeed. So, we're just getting started with this story, so it's hard to draw conclusions until everything plays out. Still, let's review. Assuming the tin can story is true, William Stevenson ended up with a vast fortune by stealing the designs of a German tin can opener and then ripping off the Icelandic Canadian community, then investing in radio and TV research. So there's probably proof somewhere that, that William Stevenson was involved in intelligence before he went to Germany, because it seems hard to believe that he could have gotten so rich off of radio, TV, film, concrete, and steel without being brought in on something. Stranger things have happened, but I think we're missing some connective tissue here. Then, we see how William Stevenson's probably solid business instincts led him right to the major source of capital to be made, 
exploiting other countries through the development of their economies. Even if he's telling the truth, that's another lesson. If you get powerful enough, you're eventually drawn into these spy games anyway, because that is where power is located. When you're at the point of meeting bankers and foreign leaders, you are already acting in that capacity, whether you realize it or not. And of course, the ruling elite do realize it. Then we saw how the British were much, much more aware of economic warfare due to their defeats in World War I by the Germans. And as we're going to see, the British are going to be very effective at economic warfare in World War II. MI6 and Stevenson almost crippled Germany's war machine right off the bat, for instance, with the Swedish ore incident, and having been on the offensive in economic warfare, then they sent William Stevenson to defend British interests in the United States. Then we saw how Stevenson and Donovan almost single-handedly subverted the wishes of the United States Congress and the American public. Although, to be fair, it was in line with the executive, with the will of the president. And we saw a few of the tricks they pulled. We're about to see exactly how they did it, and many, many more tricks. Stay tuned. Now regarding sources today, I used the book Room 3603, and I have so many thoughts about it as a source, but that will come later. I also used the book Agents of Influence by Harry Hemming, as well as the excellent articles at the Spartacus Educational website, which I love to use as a better version of Wikipedia, at least for topics like this. Thank you for listening. I just want to say, dear listeners, I love you. Thank you for listening to my show. It makes me feel good knowing you're all out there listening to me. Before I started this show, I listened to quite a lot of podcasts, and I know that it can be an can be almost an intimate thing. You know, you're listening to someone, there's that parasocial relationship, and I just want to say, I reciprocate that parasocial relationship with each and every one of you on a real level. I need to be on my way. I need to go to one Helgolander Ufer in Berlin. See you next week, and God bless. <laughs> <laughs>